Welcome back, everybody, to the WWC Winning with Connections podcast. We have some guests with us today. We've got Rachel McCaffrey, who is the leader of Women in Defense for the National Defense Industrial Association, and with us representing the vanguard of professional women in the defense industry, we've got Andrea Kramer, who works with us at WWC Global as well. Welcome, ladies. Hi. Thank you, Donna. Can I ask you just to start by giving us a quick recap of, of your professional lives, what brought you to where you are right now in the defense space? Rachel? Yeah, I graduated from the University of Notre Dame in 1988, a topic we were just discussing, and was commissioned a second lieutenant in the United States Air Force. I'm an intelligence officer by trade. I spent 28 and a half years in the Air Force. My last four years, I was on the air staff as a programmer, which means that I know and understand money. Uh, Coming out of the Air Force, I like to say graduating from the Air Force as opposed to retiring, I expected to get a job in the defense industry. And uh, instead ended up working for a nonprofit, the National Defense Industrial Association. I'm their vice president for membership and chapters and the executive director of Women in Defense, which is the job I agreed to assume. But of course, the reward for good work is more work. And so I lead a small nonprofit that works to help women in the defense industry achieve whatever professional objectives they set for themselves and then encourage talented young women to choose defense as their career. And so I love my job. It's really interesting. I spend a lot of time discovery learning. I think that that's one of the things we may talk about in this podcast, which is don't close yourself off to opportunity just because it's not something you expected or something that you don't think you've been educated or trained to do. That's very good advice. Uh, Andy? Hi, uh, Andrea, better known as Andy Kramer here. I am currently Senior Proposal Manager with WWC Global, as you said, Donna. And my entree into the defense space was as an undergraduate intern at OSD Policy at the Pentagon. And in that role, I had the pleasure of working under two very influential women. And the fact that I could look at my direct supervisor and her boss, who was a deputy undersecretary of defense for civilian personnel policy, and say, I, as an intern, beginning to understand what type of role I might like to pursue in my career, as a civilian defense intern, I'm looking up to two SES women as my leaders. There's a space for me in this world if I want to have it. And a distinction within that was that I was also, of course, a civilian. I did not have plans to go into active duty service, but I saw an opportunity to be a young woman influencing defense policy from before I even obtained my bachelor's degree. Went on to study uh, in the School of Foreign Service at the master's level at Georgetown and always intended to be the the leading career should I ever enter a partnership of any kind. Um, and that was derailed when I met my spouse who was and still is an active duty service member. So I then went into the defense industry because of the more flexible opportunities in different locations as compared with having a government career myself. And fast forward almost 15 years to finding another organization where I could look up to two influential, really three influential women as part of my leadership team. And that was a a big part of my decision to join WWC Global earlier this year. Very much to, to our benefit. Welcome. 
So let me ask the question. I, I want to ask the question first of Andy. And Andy, where do you see the role of women in 2020 in the defense space? Whether How, how do things look to you? Do they look equal? Do they look natural? Do they look organic? Do they look like we need to make changes? How does this industry look to you and how does it look for a newly minted college graduate or high school graduate potentially contemplating defense as a career choice? So my first thought is of my own team right now. And I am fortunate to work with two brand new professionals coming out of their master's programs and both women. And so to see them joining this industry coming from writing backgrounds and seeing proposal management as a, an application of their academic pursuits, uh, but being new to defense, that's encouraging to me because these are folks who maybe didn't even have the defense industry on their radar and are seeing ways uh, as young professional women to apply their skill sets and uh, their own academic backgrounds in this space. At the same time, I also believe that the conversation that's been being had for many decades of how women are are still treated differently, uh, communicated with differently in meetings, managed differently, promoted differently. I, I think that conversation is still valid and all the progress that has been made, notwithstanding, there is still room for women to be, uh, to truly be given equal standing within this space. Rachel, I, I think you probably uh, have a kind of more survey-oriented view of the industry, given where you sit. What is your view? I think, well, what I tell young women is that if you want to lead, choose national security. I think that we still have a long way to go, but I think that one of the benefits of serving in the national security enterprise is because there are so many defense professionals, active duty military professionals who permeate the national security enterprise writ large, that there is this idea of honestly evaluating, you know, what you're doing periodically. And so when you look around at all of the uh, literature coming out of the major business schools, it says diverse, inclusive teams make better decisions 100% of the time, and they measure it in stock price. But, you know, better decisions mean that you're moving forward in, in ways that are better than your peers, competitors, or potential adversaries. And of course, in defense, there is no second place. You know, national security, we, we can't lose. That's not an option for the nation. And so there's a strong incentive to make sure that you are selecting the best leaders for the different aspects of the entire security enterprise. And it's, it's a pretty broad enterprise. So while we still have a long way, way to go, I would argue that we do better than other areas of the economy, say finance or IT, because in the military, while not perfect, it's a meritocracy, especially through the colonel level. You could have some interesting conversations about the general officer level and above. And, and I think also within government service, through the GS-15 level, you can make a really good argument that it's a meritocracy because it has to be. And I think when you start looking at the defense companies, you see some of that, you know, some of that bleed over that it is a meritocracy. And we have also benefited from what I believe is a larger pool 
of not just male mentors, but male advocates, men who have recognized good leaders who have recognized, yeah, we need a more diverse, inclusive leadership pool. And so they've deliberately and thoughtfully searched out excellent women talent and then helped to place it in positions where it has an opportunity to grow. Because as, as both of you know, having worked in this space for a long time, your opportunities depend a great deal on the current job that you're in. You get put into a job so that you can demonstrate your potential to serve in a job with more responsibility. That fundamentally is the way most organizations work. And so, you know, throughout the national security enterprise, I see us as doing better than most other areas of the economy, but not as we've not achieved our, our potential. And so I think we still have some work to do, but I do believe because, I mean, in a very specific way to win, we do better than most other areas of our economy. So do you find that the women in positions of leadership in the current big five, are they coming out of active duty backgrounds or are they coming out of strictly business backgrounds? Is it a, how does it compare to the men that are leading in these industries as well? So as best I can tell, and again, I've not done the, the intense research on it, but their women and men tend to be from the industry background. Mm-hmm. What you see are the uniformed three and four stars, they end up on the boards of directors. Right. And what you see of the one and two stars is they end up in business development. (laughs) And they end up in business development because after their cooling off period, they have a Rolodex where they can at least get a meeting with the current one and two stars to pitch different approaches to different problems and challenges that are facing the department. And you know, we had we don't have a really long history of women general officers. And so it's a little bit harder for me to, to know exactly where they are. But I, I am certain Ellen Polakowski, who was an Air Force four star, she led our acquisition team both in the Pentagon and then out at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. I know General Polakowski, who is awesome, sits on a number of boards. And, you know, there are very few people as smart on technology capabilities and then the acquisition process as Ellen Polakowski. So that, that um, you know, that kind of post-career sort of path that you see is, I think for women, general officers is going to be the same as it is for men. If you're a three or a four star, you're going to get invited to be on boards. And that and that works also for the women who are political appointees, who when they rotate out of those positions, that tends to be what you see. So Lisa Disbro, who was a GS and then an SES in the J-8, and then was selected to be the Comptroller of the Air Force, and then the Undersecretary of the Air Force, and then the Acting Secretary of the Air Force during the first six months of the Trump administration. You know, she sits on a number of boards of directors, you know, sharing her insight and her strategic acumen with those businesses as they look to figure out, you know, where is DOD going and how can they posture themselves to take advantage of where the department's going. So I think talent wins out. Lisa Disbro is a person who, if you ask anyone who was on the staff when Lisa Disbro was there, any one of us would work for her again. And so what makes me confident is that when you give women an opportunity to be in those leadership positions, many, if not most of them, excel. And then that creates 
opportunity for the next generation of women who are coming up, which if you give me just a, if you'll bear with me for a moment, I want to talk tangentially about something that I think is really interesting about that topic. So I'm a big sports fan and there's a woman who works for ESPN and her name's Mina Kimes. And she is a very successful football analyst for ESPN. Harvard was a writer for like Business Week or something like that, but found herself spending most of her time on the internet, on boards, you know, chat boards, talking about Seattle Seahawks football. And so she becomes an analyst for ESPN, a writer for the ESPN, the magazine before it went defunct, and then a contributor to a bunch of their programs. And last summer, not this summer, not the COVID, not the summer of COVID, but last summer, the Los Angeles Rams went to her and said, we'd like to offer you the opportunity to be an analyst in the booth for our preseason games. And as you know, there's not a ton of women in a ton of positions, you know, coaches or referees or whatever, you know, we're going through a bunch of firsts. So they ask her if she wants to be an analyst in the booth. And her first thought is to say no. And the reason that her first thought is to say no, according to a podcast I heard, is that she was afraid she'd screw it up and thus prevent other women from having that job later on. So every time you become the first woman, you're you're a pathfinder. And and I have been told by HR professionals in the industry when we talk about, you know, how do you get women to apply for higher level positions? Because there's a very famous Hewlett Packard study out there that says men will apply for a position if they meet about 60 percent of the requirements in the job posting and women will only apply if they meet 100 percent and it's in the job postings written in a certain way. And I had an HR executive tell me that's that's true, but insufficient. You know, me telling people that to encourage women, if you meet 60 percent of the requirements, apply because the guys are applying, you know, try and get yourself in the room for an interview and then sell yourself, sell yourself on what you can do and how fast you learn and how great you're going to be in that position. And he said telling them that is necessary but insufficient. He said most women also need to see another woman who has succeeded in that position. They need to see a pathfinder. I'm like, well, where do these pathfinders come from? You know, you talk about women like uh, Admiral Grace Hopper, you know, how do those women, you know, get the courage and the tenacity to be that successful? And so I, I talk about Mina Kimes because ultimately she accepted the offer and she was in the booth for the Rams for their preseason games. And I wish there had been preseason games this year because I wish she had gotten another opportunity. She's been very successful at ESPN and is now, you know, one of their lead football analysts. And it's great because my niece, Samantha, who's not a really big sports fan, has been a member, you know, has been part of our fantasy football league in our family for the last three years. And she, you know, she played the first year because her boyfriend wanted to play and they broke up. And Sam stays in it because she found that all of the guys in her small high school were incredibly impressed when they'd start talking about fantasy football. And Sam could talk about her fantasy football team. And having someone like Mina Kimes in a position where she is considered one of the best analysts in yeah. football, I think is super important. So, you know, it's a long way of getting back to your, how are we doing? You know, we have to continue to encourage women of talent to go into these leadership positions because it just, the next generation then, th- then sees it and thinks that's normal. That's the way things always are. Of course, I can be a senior football analyst for ESPN. Of course, I can be the secretary of the Air Force, not the secretary of the Army or the Navy, but the Air Force, yes. <laughs> Now, and, and so, again, that brings me back to the question I asked you earlier was, is this about 
combat experience. Is this about having been active duty and eating the same dirt with with the rest of the cohort running, you know, a lot of, of the defense establishment right now? Because uh, literally, you know, working with SOCOM, which is strictly male, and uh, my husband was in, was in the submarines at the time that it was strictly male, their entire networks are strictly male. And there's a sense of comfort and there's a sense of trust. They call each other my brother. You know, one of, one of the things I always wanted was to be in one of these meetings and be called my sister because of, of the way that the former active duty guys call each other, you know, my brother so-and-so, you know, thank you, brother. What do we do about that? Do we do something about that? Is that just naturally going to fall away as both the industry and the Department of Defense itself become more diverse? What do you think about that? I mean, I, I do think that it is a significant reason why women don't get pulled up quite as naturally as men do in some of these structures. Well, clearly from a general officer perspective, you would expect to see over the next few years more women general officers because of the combat positions that were open to them in the 90s and early 2000s. And and that lack of combat experience has been used as a, you know, a determinant in saying, well, we can't have women um, be senior officers in the Army because you have to have been in the infantry or the artillery or armor. And, and now you've got women in those positions. And so you would expect to see that. I think the question of combat will eventually sort itself out. What I think is going to be harder is this whole idea of how do you do promotions to general officer? Because the system as it exists has kind of come to perpetuate itself. And I'm not sure how you I'm not sure how you process your way out of that, because that's what you're going to have to do. I read a, a great book by a Harvard behavioral economist named Dr. Iris Bonet. It's called What Works Gender Equity by Design. And it starts out by talking about orchestras in the United States, the top five orchestras in the United States in the early 70s. Only about five percent of their musicians were women. And now that number is closer to 35%, which is kind of critical mass when you start to really have equity and balance. And the big way that they managed to get from 5% to 35% is during the auditions. You know, when you actually have to play the instrument, first they hung up a curtain and then they installed carpeting. They hung up the curtain because they're like, oh, now they won't know that it's a woman. They heard her heels as it clicked across the floor. Right. Once you take that away, once it becomes only about the music, that now you're starting to get to where you would think you would be, which is at about 50-50, you know, in terms of pure talent and ability to play as part of an orchestra. And so how do you create similar processes in the DOD? Because up until probably the, the colonel, the lieutenant colonel colonel position, you can try, you can take pictures out of it. You can try and take pronouns out of it. But once you get to the colonel level, even if you take the pronouns out of it, you can't take commander of the 480th ISR wing. Like everybody's going to know who that is. Right. Com commander of the first fighter wing. Oh, I have no idea who that is. Yes, we're going to promote him to Brigadier General. You, do you know what I'm saying? So how do you build a process where race and gender and background come out of it because in the end you're promoting people in the military based on their demonstrated potential to serve. It, it's not a reward. Promotion, I think people sometimes mistake promotion for being a reward. Promotion is not a reward for what you've done. Promotion is a recognition that, of, that what you've done demonstrates that you can do more, that yeah. your ability to deal with ambiguity, your ability to deal with 
complexity, your ability to deal with the, you know, volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous, you know, the VUCA problem set, especially in the military, is better than that of your peers. So it's all about your potential to serve in the next highest rank and not a reward for work that you've already done. And now, do you, do you think that the changing nature of warfare is also sort of contributing to, to a shift that will move us towards kind of more meritocratic leadership, given that I think warfare is less physical these days, right? It's a lot more uh, in the cyber domain. It, it has been for a while about technology, about the logistics chain, about the business management, how is that, you know, the fact that warfare, and maybe you agree and maybe you don't agree that it's evolving into looking a little bit more like business, how do you think that's going to affect the meritocracy of, of the processes of promotion in the space? Yeah, so I, I think it goes back to the how do you change the current process to take all of those factors into account? What what tends to happen in terms of unconscious bias is is you tend to promote people who look like you or people who are you. And that's so is how exactly. That's that's like that. yeah. And um, and when you so, so very naturally, if you're a general officer in the United States military, you think that the process used to pick general officers is pretty effective because after all, it picked you. Right. I mean, that's that's I, I think that's human nature. I like that you to, worked hard. Yes, I have no reason to think that you cheated your way in there. Yes. Yep. And it recognized your talent and your potential and all of those kinds of things. And so the how you get rid of that bias, how you how you blow the system up um, in order to come up with more diverse thought at the top is, I think, a, a really good question. But the but the other piece of that is. I believe that cognitive diversity is an overall positive in any organization, but you can't recruit for cognitive diversity. You can, it's really hard. It, what people do is they recruit for demographic diversity. Mm-hmm. So I know that you're women and I know they're men and I know that you're white and I know that they're black or they're Asian or whatever. And, and so you can recruit for that, but you've got no guarantee that because you recruited uh, a, a man and a woman that they're going to think differently. And so I had a Lockheed Martin group, I, you know, say to me at the end of my briefing, OK, you've sold us, you know, diverse, inclusive teams make better decisions. How do you get there? And, and I'm sad to have to tell you that getting there requires um, things that organizations don't like to do. So organizations are all about streamlining, efficient decision making. And so the way that that normally happens, and this is in business as well as in the Pentagon, I've seen it in both places, is they have a challenge or a problem and they kind of have it. They want it all figured out before the seniors get in the room. And then the seniors get in a little room and there's five of them and everybody's kind of all agreed. And so they rubber stamp the answer and it goes through. And I said, if you really want to get um, diversity and inclusion in decision making, you have to expand to the size of the room and then empower the people around the edges, you know, not around the table, empower the people around the walls to, to genuinely contribute. 
when you talk about large, complex organizations that are built for efficiency and built for a clear and direct answer to the questions that are heard over and over and over again, they create stove piping. And, and I, I love what you said about complex questions, um, because that really is complex questions are the challenge that people are promoted to solve. And when we say complex, we mean there are all sorts of different inputs that all sort of battle against each other. And so as you said, instead of getting, you know, the commander in the room to listen to what the rest of the staff has already decided is the best way to go, you can do that, but then you can also have them each defend their positions, and you can, as you said, and as the Obama administration was famous for doing, pick the quiet guy or the quiet gal out in the back of the room and and say, I haven't heard from you, you know, how, how do you perceive this, and, and kind of poke at your potential path forward a little bit. Um, large organizations aren't really great at poking at the proposed path forward. Uh, um, there's a lot of deferring responsibility from one branch to another. Well, I'm not the expert in it, so somebody else who issued an opinion must be the expert. Uh, and that, you know, bringing across the board all of those stakeholders, which, as you noted, oftentimes requires diverse cognitive thinking, um, which sometimes can even be found in one person. Like, I'm particularly a fan of, and, and this is one of my personal biases, um, people that speak other languages and people that have lived in other countries. I just find that they don't take anything for granted, that they, they aren't given a structure and just buy into it without sort of poking at it and say, well, why isn't it this way or couldn't it be that way? I think that some of the things that we women can do is particularly sell ourselves as cognitively diverse in in one executive right you know i've i've served in this role i've served in that role and that in itself might be a way to market ourselves when we're sitting there with the 60 percent qualifications the guy next to us is sitting with would that be a good way to differentiate ourselves or do you have other advice for how women can get there at 60 percent qualification and tip the balance so that they get the next job up yeah uh, so the first thing I would tell you is give someone an opportunity to tell you no. What I think happens more often than not is we're either afraid to have someone say no or we're afraid to even throw our hat in the ring. What can we do for those of us that, that are now in positions of authority and positions of hiring? Besides the obvious, you know, what else can we do to diversify the leadership at the top and, yeah, in, so and through the ranks? Yeah. So I think the most important thing is to is that whole part about 60 percent is probably good enough for any position. So, you know, if, if I'm hiring someone for a position and mostly I hire for entry level positions, but for any position I hire, I'm looking for some. My most important thing is, are you willing to work hard? Are you a good teammate? Are you smart? Are you smart enough to do the job that you're going to do? So as a hiring authority, hire people who you're looking to give opportunities to, not just someone who meets 100% of the requirements. Like if there's someone who meets 100% of the requirements and there's good reason for hiring them, great. But don't don't not consider someone because they're only 60%. Like it becomes really easy if 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 we're mainly white and male at the director level in a in a company or a corporation or across our enterprise, which I'd argue right now we are mainly white and male, it becomes easy to say, okay, look, I had six white males interview and one black female. 
clearly, you know, five to, you know, I gave it to, to one of the white, to one of the white men. And maybe it's that the black woman didn't have as much opportunity growing up. But if, but if you think she's willing to work hard and you think she could be a good contributor to the team, she's going to bring a diversity of thought that's yeah. going to make you better. That's going to make you better. And that should be what you want for your organization and for your stockholders. Nice. And I think if I can jump in here, Donna, that is a place that as a professional woman who's mid-career, where I see a lot of opportunity within our industry at defense contracting for women to be hired and men as well, for professionals to be hired for themselves as whole people rather than fitting neatly into the square box of a certain position that with small business, it's all hands on deck. So you, of course, will have a PD that you're hired to fill. But ideally, there's both an expectation and an opportunity there to do more than just what's on that list that says this is your primary set of responsibilities and, and obligations. But you can bring your whole self to your organization, uh, in particular when you are working for an organization that is small and that is growing. And so from my perspective, I see a real opportunity to do what Rachel is describing within our industry at the size standard that WWC Global has has grown through and is through this podcast and other means providing some mentorship to businesses that are in that small space. I do think that, I, you know, a lot of the times some of the stories that you hear, the challenges that we've had as women have always come from the outside, not from the inside. I certainly hope that that's true for all types of people within the firm that they haven't felt, you know, preconceptions because, you know, we're not who people conceive when they conceive of a defense executive. But that's very freeing. It's very liberating. And we also didn't come out of that milieu. We kind of wrote a new rule book for it. And so what do you think is is sort of a, a better bet at this point, let's say that you are someone with, you're coming from a diverse background and you're looking at either a, a large established firm to start your career with, or you're looking at a smaller one that maybe looks a little bit different. Do you, is there one that would be more advantageous than the other in today's defense landscape? I think, I, I think most firms now are really looking for, the truly and earnestly looking for diversity. In my own career, I started large and without having a plan of I'm going to deliberately move from one of the largest defense contracting firms in the country down to within the span of about two years, I'm going to be part of four person startup. And by the way, I'm going to be the first woman hired by that startup. That was not a plan. It just happened. Uh, And I think the part and the, the only plan that I really had was looking for opportunity to grow. And I found that the opportunities that presented themselves organically in my networks and uh, my career progression and development were to go smaller and smaller and smaller. Because when you have fewer people involved, that's a chance to, to take on more. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I think, you know, something a lot of people don't realize is the way that position descriptions are written once a firm has reached a certain size, they're extremely limiting and they don't allow for this idea that, well, someone has 60% of the requirements and so let, let's take them on board. In fact, the way they're written at a certain size is the must-have requirements are this. 
And anyone that, you know, and, and this is why everyone complains about, you know, sending resumes in and applications in and then they never hear because unless they literally have the same language in their resume as is in that work posting, they're not going to get to the second level, which is looking at all the nice to haves. And that's really good. And it creates a, a fair competitive landscape to filling a lot of positions. But what it also does is it stovepipes career paths so that if you're applying to be a communications specialist three, you need to have been a communication specialist two and a communication specialist one for X number of years in each case to not be knocked out of that competition. And then what that does is I think it doesn't allow people to diversify their portfolio of skills to flex some other professional muscles. And, and to some degree, I think it, it suppresses the creativity and the growth that a lot of professionals have when they go into a smaller firm. That's a really interesting question, because if you go small, you are you are going to get trained by doing. You are going to basically discovery training. If discovery training is a thing like discovery learning, and if you go with a big, I know a young woman who worked at NDIA. She's a um, an accounting expert. You know that's the field that she's in, and she left NDIA after a year, not because she didn't love the people, but because there was not a lot of place for growth, and so she ended up with one of the bigs. And they offer a ton of professional development training and yeah. they don't they don't require any payback for it. And so this is a chance for her to build that tool set. Like you said, if you need to be a communication specialist three, then there's some things you have to do. So there are some things that require certifications and you have a better chance of getting those things in a, a mid or large size company that that either offers internal professional development or will pay for you know professional development courses. I just think that that's part of your compensation package, like your compensation package writ large that you need to understand. And I will tell you that one of the things that I'm finding when I'm talking to young women is this idea of a compensation package is not one that's very well understood with young women as they're coming out of college. And then the second part is and when I've had conversations with them that negotiating the compensation package is not a, a concept they're familiar with. And again, all of the literature shows that men end up better off from a compensation package in many ways, not because the company's prejudiced, but the company is incentivized to get the best deal for the talent it can. And if you don't negotiate, then there's no way for you to, and it doesn't necessarily have to be base salary. It can be time off. It can be, you know, better match on your 401k. There's a better bonus opportunity, you know, you know, get, get rewarded for, you know, better performance, but you hardly ever, I, you know, I tell young women, I said, unless you're going into government service, negotiating is something you absolutely should do from the beginning and ideally find someone else who's working in a similar job, either in the same company or a different company. Like the recommendation that I've been giving to especially engineering students coming out of school is if you know anyone who's in the class before you or the class before that, if you can get them to share the details of their compensation package for a similar job that, because if you don't know anything you know, as a young engineer, you have no idea whether $30,000 is good or $60,000 is good or 90000 I mean, you you have literally no idea if someone won't share that information with you. And that goes back to the conversation we were having about what can women do to help other women. Sharing the details of your compensation yeah. package and yeah. sharing the details of how you negotiated, you uh -huh. know, a signing bonus. Like, I was super fortunate. I had a number of guys who shared a bunch of inf compensation information for me when I was coming out of the military. And one of the key things they said was always, always, always negotiate a signing bonus, but don't do it until you're ready to accept the job. 
And I found that to be, uh, you know, it didn't work with a nonprofit, but as I was working, you know, my alternative, which was with a, a big defense firm, absolutely. You know, we had agreed that I was going to take the job and then I'm like, okay, now let's talk about the, the signing bonus. And they're like, okay, what do you want? I mean, literally that was, and I'm like, I need money to pay for my new outfits that I have to wear because I am no longer wearing combat boots and ADUs. Well, and I think that you need to not be scared of being told no. I think it's okay to ask and, right. and get the no. I think oftentimes, I don't know whether this is a gender-based thing, but I think people think that it's impolite to ask for something when they might get a no. And we need to encourage, I think, everyone, you know, all stripes to, if, if there's something that you think is appropriate, go ahead and ask. And even if you think it's not appropriate or it might be industry standard, go ahead and ask. And that's why it's, it's helpful to get information from other people. And if you're a woman, if you have guy friends, you know, because a lot of times they'll do that. They will have done that negotiation. And so you can have that conversation with them. But we should be sharing that for some reason we in America do not like to share compensation information with each other. And, and sometimes I think it's, you know, again, companies have kind of incentivized that because not, in this case, knowledge is power. You know, the, the companies know what their what their bands are. But if you as a as an individual don't, then you don't know, you know, what's reasonable. And so I, I just think the more we share, the, the better off all of us are. And there are also, I mean, there are a lot of public surveys out there. You can go on the Department of Labor website and see what the prevailing wage is for any given role. There are private surveys that might even be worth paying for. Just like, you know, when you buy a car, you go and you pay for the CarMax on the VIN number. A little bit of investment will go a long way. And, and I think that if you go back to your employer and you say, well, I'm seeing here in this particular survey on salaries, that that's 20% below what the industry standard is for someone in my experience. You know, that's that information that you that you want to have. Yeah, that is a really good piece of advice to, to give to people. Well, any last thoughts, bits of advice for those of us that are in a position to diversify our workforces or those of us that as members of minority profiles within, a, within this industry uh, or within DOD can take and use actionably? So I would leave with kind of two things. The first is what Trisha Ward of who's Alan Hamilton said, which is join an association. You know, obviously I am prejudiced towards women in defense and the National Defense Industrial Association. I think that they're great organizations for small businesses, especially NDIA is by far a small, a small business educational nonprofit. We're not a lobbying organization, but become part of a team to help make things better for everyone because we need input and the collaboration uh, in order to do that. And the second piece of advice I'd leave for individuals is a piece of advice that a chaplain gave to me, gave to our entire group when, uh, when I was at Beale, and that is ask for help. There is not a single person listening to this podcast who is not at some point in the future going to need help, you know, and I'm speaking now specifically of professional help. Ask for it. You, you know, the your manager or your leader should be asking you what you need if they're good, but sometimes you get really busy, sometimes you forget. And so don't be afraid to go and ask for help. And if you don't think that your leadership, that your direct leadership will help you, then find someone else, another reason to join an association. I spend a lot of time answering questions from uh, WID members, or even more importantly, leveraging my network on behalf of WID members, women who have reached a point in their career where they're like, hey, I'm thinking about doing something else and I don't really know how to go about it. And so they send me their resume and I connect them with someone else 
because, you know, sometimes it's lawyers and I do not know very much about, you know, that it's a very, kind of a very specific lawyers and NDIA. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, but ask for help because one, you're not going to get any help if you don't ask for it most of the time. Don't ask, two, don't exactly. And so if you ask for help, I think you'll be surprised about the resources that are available. You're going to obviously have to do some work. It's always amazing to hear from the, it's always amazing to hear stories. Leanne Corrette talked about some, you know, at Boeing, people would ask for a mentoring session with her and they think that just because they got a mentoring session in her office that she was immediately going to promote them. And that is not a thing. Mentoring does not mean advocacy. If you're looking for advocacy as, as a form of help, which I also think is a, a, a good thing to do periodically, make sure that that's what you're asking for. You're asking for them to pick up the phone and make a recommendation for a job or something like that. Uh, both are good. They're different. You may want mentoring that leads to advocacy. Just make sure whoever you're asking for help knows what, what, you, what you would like to get and then be willing to do the work if you ask for a mentoring session. That is really such a good point because I get asked to mentor people all the time. And, and I'll tell you that after you've sort of been through the mill for a couple of years, you want to share what you know because you want to spare other people running into some of the walls that you've run into. You want to share some of the you know, cool tricks that you've learned along the way. So people really do want to share their knowledge and, and the benefit of their experience. But what you'll have often is you'll have this sort of artificial approach to mentoring where someone will say, you know, I'd really love to pick your brain and, you know, here's what I want to be. And then they just kind of, like you said, okay. Now you're my mentor. Advocate for me, like make this happen for me. The most productive mentorship relationships I've had as a mentor have been uh, when someone called me with a very specific question and I had a very specific answer. And they said, listen, you know, do you mind if I just keep your email? You know, something comes up in the future and, I, you know, I'd love to stay in touch. Sure. Absolutely. And then every couple of months, I'd get a specific question. You know, I'm, I'm looking to do this. Would you advise that I go this way or that way? A specific answerable question. And then after a while, this was a particular woman, by the way, who called me saying, you know, I want to start a consulting firm. Should I go to law school? And I said, why would you go to law school to start it? You're, you're already prepared. You're already qualified. And in fact, she did start a consulting firm and is doing you know, a couple million dollars a year in, in business now. But what I found so graceful in the way she cultivated me as a mentor was she said, listen, I know how busy you are and I don't want to task you, but I wanted to know if you might consider if we could set up once a quarter an hour long conversation, you know, and it was very circumscribed, very limited. It was very clear what I was agreeing to do. And she was being very upfront about what she was asking for. And then she would be prepared for each one of these hour-long conversations. She had very specific questions. You know, should I get this kind of insurance? You know, what do you know about, you know, this kind of solicitation? And and really used me as a, as a resource. And I think both of us felt the benefit of that relationship because there weren't these unspoken expectations that were sort of unrealistic to me. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the, something that's exactly like that. Ask for advice, but know what you're asking for. And then, you know, if you go to someone for mentoring and they make a recommendation and you don't follow through on it, then, then don't waste their time asking for mentoring in the future because, you know, you got, you have to do the work and the homework. I mean, mentor, mentoring is not just, it's, mentoring is not the senior person doing work for you. The mentor can tell you where to focus. The mentor can guide you on what are appropriate next steps, but the mentor can't do it for you. you I, I think that's a really good point. 
All right, well, Rachel, thank you for joining us. Andrea, thank you for joining us. I hope that we can have you back at some point, and this has been very illuminating. Thank you for having me. It's been uh, it's been a great conversation, which I always enjoy. Good, good. It's been it's been wonderful to hear your thoughts. Andrea, last last thoughts to share with us. I would just add to what Rachel had to say about uh, final parting advice that in addition to asking for help, I found it valuable to ask people, what can I do to help you? Everyone likes to feel supported. And I think for women, for men, for anyone who is minority within our industry, the offer to be interested in what others may be mentoring you could use a hand with provides one more avenue to learning, one more avenue to growth and helps to build the relationships that no matter who you are or where you are starting from will help to propel you forward. Completely agree. Absolutely. Thanks so much, ladies. Thanks, Donna. Thanks, Donna.